There's a wonderful book by Charles Spurgeon titled All of Grace, and I would like to read an excerpt from it to you this morning. I heard a story. I think it came from the North Country. A minister called upon a poor woman intending to give her help, for he knew that she was very poor. With a half crown in his hand, he knocked at the door, but she did not answer. He concluded she was not at home and went his way. A little after, he met her at the church and told her that he had remembered her need. I called at your house and knocked several times, and I suppose you were not at home, for I had no answer. At what hour did you call, sir? Well, it was about noon. Oh, dear, she said. I heard you, sir, and I am so sorry that I did not answer, but I thought it was the man calling for the rent. Many a poor woman knows what this meant. Now it is my desire to be heard, and therefore I want to say that I am not calling for the rent. Indeed, it is not the object of this book in question to ask anything of you, but to tell you that salvation is all of grace, which means free, gratis, for nothing. He goes on to say, oftentimes when we are anxious to win attention, our hearer thinks, ah, now I am going to be told my duty. It is the man calling for that which is due to God, and I am sure I have nothing wherewith to pay. I will not be at home. But no, this is not, I do not come to make a demand upon you, but to bring you something. We are not going to talk about law and duty and punishment, but about love and goodness and forgiveness and mercy and eternal life. End quote. And note that Spurgeon, as he mentions those things, all have their place. Law has its place. The duty has its place. The punishment has its place. But today, in ministering to you all from the Word of God, I want to concentrate on grace. I want to concentrate on the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. And for that, we will be in a very, very important uh, text today. Actually, one of, one of my favorite texts in all of Scripture and is a, is a, has been a huge encouragement to me uh, over the years. It's, uh, it's tough to title a sermon like this, but if I could label it anything, it would simply be this, Rest in Christ for Save Sinners. And we talk a lot about the rest that we have in Christ, the rest that we enjoy now, and then, of course, the ultimate, final, eternal rest uh, to which we look forward. But I know that certain times come where we simply just desire to consider that rest more closely, to consider the grace that we have in Christ more carefully. And so I invite you to turn into your Bibles to the book of 1 John. Book of 1 John chapter 2. Our text today is verses 1 through 6, and I'll tell you right now we're not going to get through the whole thing, but we'll get through as much as we can. But if you're there, please follow along. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And He Himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. By this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. The one who says, I have come to know Him and does not keep His commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps His word, in Him the love of God has been Truly, has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in Him. The one who says He abides in Him ought Himself to walk in the same manner as He walked. And this might seem a little peculiar, preaching a, a passage like this, a passage where we think, oh, grace upon grace from 1 John. If you have read 1 John, and some of you may have many times, it's not a very long letter, there is a lot in it regarding duty, regarding judgment. There are many if-then statements in John. 
there are many indicting statements against those who would claim to know Jesus Christ and yet do not do what He says. They do not regard His Word. They do not obey Him. And so, of course, John says you, you should question at bare minimum whether or not you truly know Him. Because if you say you do, and then you don't obey Him, you are a liar. John understands, I think this is very important to understand here with this text, is that John will be the first to tell you that grace transforms your life. And so if you are in Christ, you will not go on continuing to live an untransformed life. However, in this same letter, we come to sort of a, a, a tricky text, somewhat of a conundrum. And it is something that is very close to Reformed thought. If you will indulge me, I will read a Latin phrase to you. Simul justus et peccator. That means both righteous and sinner. It is something that continues to puzzle those who are in Christ. At some point in the Christian life, you will probably feel puzzled by this. Probably at several points in your life, you will feel puzzled by this. If I am in Christ, if I am a righteous new creation in the Lord Jesus, if I have a new nature, if I have new desires, if I have the glory of the living God dwelling inside of me, the question comes, why do I still sin? And of course, the Christian's response to sin is drastically different from the, the one who does not know Christ, from the, from the unbeliever. There is something about indwelling sin that ails us. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a thorn in the side. It's a splinter in the mind. And, but, but we wonder all the same, if I am truly in Christ, why then do I still sin? And yet, we do not want that mystery, because it's really hard to unpack that and know why exactly. There are some, there are some brief explanations for that. You know, we're not glorified. There is still indwelling sin. We still um, associate with something known as the flesh, and all of those things continue to afflict us. But it's, sometimes it's really hard to clinically and scientifically and precisely break it down to where we know exactly why. And so that mystery is ne never completely solved this side of eternity. But the question remains, and, and often, of course, the pain remains. There is an affliction to the Christian to deal with indwelling sin. We know that we sin. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is no man on this earth born of a woman who does rightly and does not sin. Man is born for trouble and the sparks fly upward. And some, and some Christians have to continually learn, learn the hard way and sanctification comes slowly and those sparks continue to fly for quite a while. Further troubling us, further troubling us is the way we even break down how we deal with sin. We're all familiar with the various ways we sin. Sometimes we sin big time. And like Adam, usually our first inclination is to do what? Run and hide. To make ourselves invisible. To be like a spiritual ninja so no one can see what we've done. To clean up the mess. That is very common. And like Adam, we may also deflect. Because of the flesh, we look to, we look to someone else to blame. What did Adam do? He said, oh Lord, this woman, <laughs> this woman you gave me. Simultaneously blaming God and his wife for his own rebellion. We make excuses all the time. We excuse our behavior and try to 
justify it. And I think at some point, maybe our most desperate point, we deny the very reality of it. That is the, the height of unbelieving behavior. Is it not to deny the presence of sin? To deny that we commit it? Even John describes this in the first chapter. He says, verse 8, if you want to draw your attention there, he says, if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. You are lying to yourself. You are twisting. You are denying what you know to be true. If you say you have no sin, you deceive yourself. And then he goes on, but if we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then, of course, if we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His Word is not in us. That's hard truth to take. And the Christian should be the first person that is willing to confess the remaining presence of indwelling sin. And it is a scrap often. And we, I think, constantly go, as we even grow in the Lord, we constantly go to the wrong resources. We look to the wrong things. And I think most tragically of all, among Christ's sheep, we do this when we sin and repeatedly sin. We simply get discouraged. We fall down. We lose heart. And who among us wants to lose heart? As His sheep, do we not have a perfect shepherd who is always with us? And yet, this is the struggle. And we often endure a time of fear and and self-loathing. A sense of being lost, vulnerable. The fact that you've been exposed as, as a hypocrite, a fraud. Sometimes it gets bad enough we even question salvation. We question the very nature and working and presence of grace in our lives. Sometimes we condemn ourselves so badly we even lose sight of that truth that Paul so gloriously states in Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I mean, that should be the final word, should it not? If God will not condemn us, then who will? Who has a right to say otherwise? And sometimes when we fall into patterns of sin, it is wise to question whether we truly are redeemed. Even Paul tells that to the Corinthians. Examine yourselves to see if you are in the faith. There are ways to test our faith, especially if we're engaging in unbroken patterns of sin. But today, this, is, this, this sermon today is primarily for you, the flock of God, the redeemed in Christ, to encourage you that no matter where you are or what you are struggling with, to look to Christ to refresh your view of Him. I was even thinking this morning about how a text like this could relate to the Christmas season. And I would say only this, as we celebrate Christ's birth and the great gift of grace that God has given us in His Son, we can recognize that through a text like this, that the gift of Jesus Christ is a gift that never grows old or dysfunctional. It never stops working. The batteries never go dead. Where this grace is simultaneously always brand new and yet gets better with age. Really what we have in here before us, especially in verses 1-2, through is what we could call a gift that keeps on giving. It is a grace ever present. A grace that always is ready to fill our cup. And so that is the hope. A hope to redeem sinners. A hope to weary sheep that this text offers us today. So let's get into it. So this, before we actually get into the text, there are three particular instructions here. I did say I would give no laws, but there are some some positive instructions. Um, The first couple deal with primarily our attitude. 
our disposition, what goes on in the inner man. And, the, and, and number three, instruction number three, which I guarantee you we will not get today, um, deals with our actual actions. The actions that flow from these attitudes. The first is this, and it comes from verse one. Listen carefully. The first encouragement for the redeemed sinner is this. Lean on Christ, your support. Lean on Christ, your support. Now let's look at the text. John says this, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. So of course, we write. Right? He's writing this in agreement with the apostolic witness. We write. It's on paper. It is the, the living Word of God. And he says, My little children. So here we see John is sort of this spiritual, not only spiritual father, but he's getting along in years. He's a spiritual grandfather at this point. He's most likely watching people he discipled, now discipling others in the faith. The faith once for all delivered to the saints. And there is a gentleness here. Remember that John used to be one of the sons of thunder. Oh Lord, Lord, shall we call down fire from the heavens to smite the rebel? Some of us think that today. There are probably many sons and daughters of thunder in this auditorium today, even amongst us. But note the tenderness as he grows in the Lord Jesus. There is a tenderness here. There is a pastor's heart here. We write these things to you, little children. So he's referring back these things, I think particularly pertaining to the rejection of false views concerning how sin may discourage spiritual growth, obedience, and holiness. But he also refers to everything that comes after that. He, he mentions these things a number of times in this text. We write these things. So there's a very um, pointed purpose into what John is saying to his people. We understand that this first purpose here is, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. We think, well, of course not. Of course we don't want to sin. We don't want anyone under our spiritual charge to sin either. But we can't minimize the gravity of what he's saying. So that you may not sin. This is especially pertinent in, 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 in to today's culture. We're even calling things sin that the Bible calls sin as seen as the greatest sin. To say that sin is an offense against a holy God is often thought as the most offensive thing that comes out of the Bible. So we must take this seriously. We do not play with sin. We do not entertain or gamble with sin. Remember, the power of sin is to be put to death. The penalty of it has already been done away with in Christ. And now as the Holy Spirit pervades every aspect of life, we are to put sin to death, put the deeds of the flesh to death. And so, as John says, we follow His counsel so that we may not sin. As your pastor, I don't want you to sin. I don't want you to trifle with sin. Even as the Lord warned Cain, sin is crouched at the door waiting to devour. It desires you and you must master it. You must rule over it. Sin is not to master you. You are to master it and not walk in sin any longer. I think there is something useful that Paul says in Romans chapter 6. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? And he says, may it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us, all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, that's us. 
have been baptized into his death. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. What a promise. What a good word from the Apostle Paul. But it says something very important here for every believer. If you are, if you have died with Christ, you're buried with him, you're raised to walk in the newness of what? The newness of his resurrection power, of his resurrection life. So what that means very plainly, Christians, is that we do not continue to live the way we used to live. There is a transformation here from the inside out. The inner man is brought to life, transformed, united with the Lord Jesus Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And of course, we are now being transformed from one glory to another, eventually culminating in the putting off of corruption and the putting on of incorruption where we get new bodies and we reign in the very presence of Christ forever and ever. Sounds like a good deal to me. <laughs> and, and where does this come from? This comes from grace. This is all of grace. Back to John. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. All good and well. Oh, but there is more. And he says, and if anyone sins, oh no, oh no, if anyone sins. That's a problem. We're supposed to put away sin. The one who is in Christ no longer continues in sin, and yet here we are, simultaneously righteous and yet sinning. John knows it. John, John knows the struggle. He knows the battle. I write these things to you so that you may not sin, and if anyone sins. And so we realize we are going to sin. That is the trouble that we've just discussed. We are going to sin. There are going to be times where we live contrary, completely contrary to the newness that has been established in Christ. We are going to live inconsistently. We are going to act the fool. We are going to act the hypocrite. And so, yes, that when, every time we sin, we are in effect denying the, the work of grace. And yes, that should trouble us. But it should not destroy the hope we have in Christ. And so, I think John realizes that. He realizes that from even the first century Christian on to now, but that the saints will be troubled with sin. And so he says this, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. This is where you sigh in relief. I have an advocate with the Father. But notice what is not going on here. Notice what is not in here yet. Because there are commands. But in reference to what we just discussed, typically when we sin, we already talked about the variety of things that may occur, but I think one thing we may try to do is become is seek for penance, right? Some, often the first thing we think of when we sin is, how can I make things right? How can I make it up to God? How can I sort of balance the scales because of what I've done, right? Oh, I sin, man. There's some negative energy over here. So how am I going to add some positive energy, some positive vibes from the universe so that me and the man upstairs are okay once again? That is the way a pagan thinks if he even acknowledges God, but it's a God of our own invention. Here's the first truth we need to know. When, answer, when asking the question, Oh Lord, I have sinned against you. What can I do? What's the answer, friends? Nothing. There is nothing you can do to make yourself right with the Holy God. And that's why we say, look to Christ. Look 
to Jesus Christ. Think about the, uh, the plague of the fiery serpents, right? The fiery serpents in the book of Numbers when Israel murmured. I'm saying this now so I don't forget. They complained. They accused Moses and by extension accused the Lord of having abandoned them. And so fiery serpents were sent in and they bit the people and many died. And you notice that all one was called to do was look at the bronze serpent that Moses fashioned. You didn't have to crawl and touch it. You didn't have to pray a prayer. Just said, look, look at the serpent. And you will be, I think it kind of gives us a clue about how rebellious the human heart is. There would be some inevitably in that multitude who would not look. They would not cast their all their cares upon God who could bring them healing. They did not look to the righteousness of their God and His and His power to say, there's nothing we can do. And look, in this text initially, you're not told to do anything. This is grace. You are told to do absolutely nothing. We have an advocate with the Father. What can I do, Lord? How can I make this right? All John does, and you should do the same, is when you sin, confront yourself with that important reality. I have an advocate with the Father. Not do this, do that, change this. You know, if you're Catholic, this is a tough text. What must I do? How many Hail Marys should I say? Bless me, Father, for I am sin. What shall I do? And the great hope is that there's nothing you can do because the great hope is also that Christ has done everything. And the first hope that we have here, the first encouragement, is that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. John uses this word advocate many times in his gospel, referring to the Holy Spirit. But in this epistle, he says we have an advocate, that is, a helper or one who comes alongside. You have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So not only is the Holy Spirit your helper, but Jesus Christ Himself, the risen King of kings and Lord of lords, who stands at the right hand of the throne of God, is intervening on your behalf continually. He is your representative before the throne of God. He is your advocate. And it's weird to think of Christ in that manner, perhaps as a, as a heavenly attorney of sorts, who speaks on your behalf. Because He is Jesus Christ the righteous. And I guarantee that the last thing that comes to mind when you think of the word lawyer is righteous. And yet we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And when we come into this heavenly courtroom, as it, as it were, it's as if a plea has already been entered. And we can plea. We can't plea our own righteousness, but we certainly can plea the righteousness of Christ. Because we know that He stands with us. And not just any representative will do. And I think that's one of the reasons. There's probably many reasons that John here uses the word righteous. There are many words used to describe the Lord Jesus Christ. We, we, we speak of Him as Lord, as Savior, as Messiah, as Redeemer. There are many ways to describe our understanding of who Jesus is and what He's accomplished. But here, very specifically, we are told that we have an advocate. He, John is just speaking out the reality. We have an ad, advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. It reminds us, one, of course, that we cannot stand, even as believers, we can never stand on the basis of our own, right, of our own righteousness. We never come to the throne of grace in and of ourselves. And I think the answer as to why is very simple to understand is because you do not have any righteous in and of your, righteousness in and of yourself. 
And to add to the trouble, no one can stand before the throne of God unless he is perfectly righteous. You realize that in order to come to the throne of God and receive grace in time of need, we need an advocate. We need a helper standing alongside of us who is always only perfectly pleasing to God the Father. And we do have that. What an amazing promise that is. That we can stand before the judge of heaven and earth whose wrath we have incurred justly, and yet we can stand in perfect favor because, we, because of the one who stands beside us. I think what's interesting too is this use of righteous uh, is an important fulfillment of Isaiah. See, this is, John is not just describing who Jesus is. In a sense, he's describing the word of God and its fulfillment um, Isaiah 53, you don't have to turn there, but just a very important verse that's related to this. Isaiah, Isaiah 53, a very famous text. We typically uh, read around uh, Resurrection Sunday regarding Christ's death. But listen to this. Speaking of the Messiah, let's start at verse 10. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. And listen to this, listen to this. And the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in His hand. Why is that important to know? Because it tells us that God is pleased with Him. So we can go before God, before the throne of God, even if we have sinned, knowing that grace has not expired, to know that God is still pleased with us because God is so pleased, don't miss, with God, don't miss this, God is so infinitely pleased with His Son, that if you go before the throne of God, standing with Jesus, God will be no less pleased with you than He is with His very Son. God can look at you, and in the same way He says, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, He can look at you and say the exact same thing. This is my Son with whom I am well pleased. You are, if you are in Christ, even now you are prospered by the good pleasure of the Lord. So let's keep reading in verse 11 here. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. Now listen to this. By his knowledge, the righteous one. The righteous one. This is spoken of earlier in Isaiah 11 about the righteous branch that his coming was anticipated, announced hundreds of years beforehand by the prophet Isaiah. So it says this, the righteous one. My servant will justify the many as he will bear their iniquity. So you see how this connects very intimately with 1 John 2, verse 1. We have this pleasure of God, but we also have the righteous one, who is Jesus Christ. But look also, it says, my servant will justify the many. What does that mean to justify someone? It means to declare them righteous. So think of how this, this cosmic heavenly picture works. His servant will justify the righteous. So why can we stand before God and receive grace in time of need? Because the servant stands with us and points to us and says, you are righteous. What a blessing, what a grace to know that we are identified as righteous. Why? Because we are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So we're recognized. We're not like the man at the party who brings in his own robes, dressed like some self-righteous clown who thinks he is going to remain at this celebration. No. 
you can only attend this celebration if you are dressed in the robes of Christ. What the prophet says are the robes of salvation, the robes of righteousness. What a wonder this is of grace. Grace upon grace. And this is the grace we meditate on today together. That we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. That we can stand in light of His accomplishments, of His righteous life, of His righteous death, even in light now of His righteous rule, and not be treated as a villain, not be treated as a rebel, not only to be treated as a Christian, but to be treated as a son, to be treated as one who joins, who is able to enjoy and join in that inheritance of the Son. We can lean, friends, we can lean on Christ, lean on Christ our support. And it's a support that is without question. It is a support that is without frailty. It is a support beyond reproach. Realize that anything in here, you know, you put weight on it. I, I lean forward, I put weight on this pulpit at some point. If I put enough weight on it, it's going to collapse. If I lean on this table here, at some point it's going to collapse. If enough people sit in this metal chair, it will eventually collapse. I think that's why it's appropriate that Jesus is called the rock of our salvation and the stone, the, the stone cut out without hands that becomes a mountain that fills the earth because that is the mountain that we lean against. It's interesting we live in Colorado. You guys have ever hiked a 14er? I am um, probably one of the worst posers of being a Coloradan in, in, in this assembly. I have lived here we have 11 years now. <laughs> I think 11 and change. I have never hiked a 14er. Never hiked a 14er. But I guarantee you, you can hike any mountain and it, the question is never going to come up in your head, is this mountain going to collapse under my own weight? Can this mountain support me? That is how we look at Jesus Christ precisely. We can lean against Him without unbelief, with complete trust, because He will hold up our weight. Cast all your cares upon Him because He cares for you. He will hold you up by His righteous, there's that word of righteous, righteousness again, His righteous right hand. The arm of the Lord is not so strong or not so, not so short or weak that He can't save, right? It's not, it's not, he, God is not weak. He is the strong one and His arm will hold you up. He will support you. And so do not hesitate, Christian, especially when you find yourselves in the throes of the battle with sin and you have compromised. Do not hesitate to throw your weight, all your weight, all your sorrow upon Him. You can't take it, but Jesus can. Jesus, and that is the greatness of the grace that is offered from this text. Listen to Hebrews 2 characterizes it this way. Actually, why don't we turn there? Turn to the book of Hebrews. It says, Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. There it is, our high priest, our advocate. Jesus Christ is our high priest. In things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of people of, of the people. So mark that word propitiation because next Lord's Day, that is going to be a primary word for study. To make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. So this, this text really helps uh, bridge the gap between verse 1 and verse 2, and it's found in that word propitiation and the term high priest. You realize the high priest in Israel, when he would go in and make the offering and sprinkle the blood upon the mercy seat, there was a riskiness involved in that task. One thing that the high priest wanted to make sure of was that he was able to go into the Holy of Holies 
and not die. Think about it that way. And if you were an Israelite, you would hope for the same thing. That the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies and not die. Tradition tells us that he wore bells on his garments. As long as the bells are making noise, you know that he hasn't been smitten. Also, a rope was tied about his ankle, so in case he died, he could be pulled out. Because no one else is going in there. Of course not. But Jesus Christ, the righteous, there is no compromise. There are no cracks. There's no fragility in his righteousness. As our righteous high priest, he can minister on our behalf before the throne of God. He has already died. And he has risen never to die again. That is who represents Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Of course, we need his righteousness because we have an adversary who accuses us. We see this in Job chapter 1. It says, you smite Job, what's Job going to do? He's going to curse you. All our enemy knows how to do is accuse us. Accuse us before God to slander us. That's what devil means. Revelation 12.10 says he accuses the saints day and night. That is why we need a righteous advocate. Because we have a righteous advocate and his, his righteousness is imputed to us, every accusation the devil can, can throw against us falls flat on its face. Listen to Hebrews 4, 14-16. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, see, there's, there's the writer of the Hebrews expressing the same reality. He's not, he's not telling you to do anything yet. You know, hold fast your confession, of course. But then he says, Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace in time of need. And the reason that we can do that is because we have a righteous advocate in the person of Jesus Christ. And so even, even as redeemed sinners, simultaneously righteous and sinner, there is no transgression so great that it can move the mountain. That it can break the solid rock upon which... So even when we sin, that's, that's, that's the simple lesson for today, friends. Even when we sin, the first question, or the first thing you say isn't what must I do? What can I do? I have an advocate. And His name is Jesus Christ, the righteous. And it would be my prayer this morning that you stand in and upon nothing else but that righteousness. That righteousness that represents us. And if you're here today and you are a foreigner to this righteousness, I would urge you, repent from your own righteousness. Repent from your works they are filthy rags before the living God. The only righteousness that will ever count in this life and in eternity is the righteousness in which the flock of God now stands. That is the righteousness. So please consider that and place your hope solely in Him and be born again to eternal life and be called His child, be received as a son. That is all we have time for today and we'll cover the... Pray with me. Oh, Father, thank You again for Your continued love and faithfulness. We thank You for this message that we can proclaim from the rooftops. What a wonderful Savior we have. And not just any Savior, a righteous Savior who has died for our sins and has risen again. And that in Him, we also can be raised to walk in newness of life. But, O oh Lord, let us just consider that simple truth today. 
We can, we can consider commandments later, but for now, let us consider reality. Let us consider truth that when we sin, we have someone who still comes to our aid, who comes to our defense. And may we do nothing less today and nothing more than to simply lean on Him. If there are any weary in here this morning who are just weary of heart, who are feeling discouraged, Lord, may we take this time to simply wait on You. We know You are here with us, and we know that You are here to lift us up, that the arm of the Lord is not so short that it cannot, that it is strong enough to bind even the most broken and to bring healing and newness and restoration. I pray, God, that you would break willing heart, unwilling hearts and that any in here who do not know you would come and bow the knee and trust in the grace that you so richly supply. I pray that even for those in here, Lord, who know you, may we never stop drinking from the fountain of grace and return again and again to receive that help in time of need. Lord, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your love for us. And above all, we thank you for Christ, the righteous one. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.